Somewhere in middle school in the English class, I first learned the difference between two very similar sounding, not similar words in concept, discovery and invention. Take about 30 seconds to see if you can recall what is the main difference between a discovery and an invention. When Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, he brought into being something that wasn't there before. But when Francis Crick and James Watson discovered the double helix and unlocked the mystery of life, they didn't invent anything, they just discovered what was already there. That is the basic difference between the word invent and the word discover. You invent something that was not already there, you discover something that was already there. That is not only true of inanimate objects, it is also true of uh, societies and individuals that are in relationship in those societies. Imaginative authors like C.S. Lewis have invented a whole land called Narnia. Young people called Susan and Edmund and Lucy and the Wicked Witch and Elms and who worked in these places. Tolkien discovered or invented uh, Middle Earth, Bilbo Baggins and uh, Gollum. Movies have been made out of that. Now, they, these things don't really exist. They are a complex network of relationships born in the human imagination. But when Christopher Columbus discovered America and the Indians who lived there, that wasn't a figment of his imagination. It already existed before he ever discovered it. Now it's not just important for us to understand the English properly. It's crucial when it comes to all, all of life. Some people thinking or believing that life is just a consequence of an accident, collision of atoms and molecules and whatnot, therefore have invented philosophies of life which they think will give them meaning and purpose and abundance in living. You've heard many of them, you just never recognize them as life philosophies. Eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die is one. Look out for number one is another one. And I remember a t-shirt that I saw, I don't get mad, I get even. These are all philosophies of life that people, they, don't, they have no independent existence of them own. People have invented them thinking that this is going to make for some meaning in, a, in life that otherwise is meaningless because it's just a product of chance. But what if, what if life was not an accident? What if life was a gift from God, our creator? What if that creator had built into his creation certain principles that made for abundant living? If that were the case, then our entire focus has to shift from making up or inventing principles for living, no matter how clever and logical they may be, we need to shift the focus to discovering principles that are already there that God has built into them. In fact, Jesus said one of the reasons he came was that we human beings might have abundant and meaningful life. So that's the reason we are doing this three-part series. We're going to discover three dimensions and three dimensions principles in three different dimensions of life. That involve all of us. Relationships, we're all in relationships. Money, we all have to deal with it whether we have it or not. And most of us are in work situations and we have to deal with principles that relate to work. And so I want to invite you with me for these next three weeks on a journey of discovery, not of imagination. A journey of discovery of principles that will make for abundant living. Principles that you might not know existed before you discovered them. And therefore a certain attitude is important. When the astronomer Galileo threw his support in behind the Copernican revolution, and uh, which of course referred to the series of observations by which Copernicus came to the conclusion that contrary to the popular and current notion that the sun revolved around the earth, that was really the other way around. 
It was the earth revolving around the sun. Many, including the church of that day, basically vilified Galileo and Copernicus. And today, atheists of all stripes have all kinds of glee when they point out this obscurantist and narrow-minded view of the church in shooting the messengers rather than rearranging their belief system to match up with reality. Now, rightly so. What the church should have done was to take his discoveries, look at them, evaluate their credibility, and then adjust their beliefs accordingly. At least in the realm of the science. But today I suggest that the boot might be on the other foot. For some of you who have lived your life on the basis of principles that you've invented, one or more of these I've talked about, as you discover these principles for abundant and meaningful living, you might not like what you hear. Because it clashes with your preconceived notions. May I suggest to you that it's time for you to do what you wanted the church to do to Galileo. You need to evaluate what I'm saying, what the word of God is saying. And if, you, if there's good reason for you to believe it, then you need to be willing to be courageous enough to adjust your beliefs and bring your life into line with these principles that you've now discovered. So, now that you know what the journey is about and the attitude you need to have, let's get started. I want to focus this today on, on the principles that cover dis- discovering healthy relationships. Now, we're all in a multiple web or a web of multiple relationships. If we are married, we're in relationship with spouses. If those spouses have parents and siblings, we are in relationship with in-laws. If you have children, you relate as a father. If you have grandchildren, you relate as a grandfather. If you have parents and grandparents, you are both a grandchild as well as a child. You live in community, therefore you have relationships with neighbors. If you come to a church of any kind or a club of any kind, you're in relationship with people who are associated with you in that venture. And if you're at work, you have relationships with work, workers. It's impossible in a 35-minute sermon to take every single relationship and prescribe a process by which we can have health in those relationships. We can't do that. What I'm going to do instead, therefore, is to look at three foundation principles that you need to discover and reorganize your relational life around in all of these relationships. They will at least provide a framework for us to get started. The place to begin is is something that is almost self-evident. All of us are aware that relationships are crucial in life. Children and young people seem to know it instinctively. A uh, Associated Press and MTV survey done not too long ago, 2007 I think it was, asked this question, what makes someone between the ages of 13 and 24 happy? It's not what you might think. The results showed that spending time with family, 73% said, makes young people happiest. Nearly half of kids surveyed mentioned one of their parents as a hero. After family, relationships with friends was most likely to make children happy. And what children seem to know intuitively, that harmony in relationships is crucial to happiness, Most of us, if we are honest enough, would acknowledge that as well. Listen, no matter how well other circumstances of your life are going, your financial life, your work life, what have you, if key relationships in your life are not going well, you're not happy. Uh, So that much is self-evident. What you may not know is why this is so. Why is it that healthy relationships are so foundational to life and especially contentment and happiness in life? For that, we've got to go all the way back to the Bible beginning in the book of Genesis, because as I said, it teaches us that life was not an accident, it was a creation of God, and he's built certain principles into it. Here's the account of creation in Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image, to be like us. 
They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So, God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Three times in this text, we are told that we were created in the image of God. And then, specifically it adds that they were created male and female. To drive home to us the fact that it is not just, just as man or just as a woman that they reflected the divine image, although they bore that. It was as male and female in relationship. So it would seem that one of the essential aspects of human beings bearing the image of God in them is the relational image. That it is as they are in relationship that they demonstrate the fact that they are image bearers. Now the particular relationship in question here is marriage. And we'll come back to that in a little while at the end. But it really does have a much wider application to all human beings in the multiple relationships that they are in. Now why is this so? Why is creation in the image of God require this male and femaleness in relationship? It's because of something in the nature of God himself. Now those of you who are not Christians are probably used to hearing Christians say things about God that make it sound like they believe in three gods. They speak, they speak about God the Father, they speak about God the Son, Jesus Christ, and they speak about God the Holy Spirit. And it sure sounds to an outsider like we, that Christianity is a polytheistic religion that believes in multiple gods. Actually, that isn't so at all. The fancy theological word for this that the Bible teaches about is Trinity. That God is a complex being. is three persons in one being. A tiny little hint is given in the very opening words in that text when God says, let us make man in our image. He uses plural words to describe himself. And this is not just of theological significance, of intense practical significance like all good theology is. For example, consider the statement that many religions make. God is love. But that's a statement that only makes sense in certain situations about God. For example, if you or I were the only persons alive on the face of this earth, let's say me, if I was the only human being alive on the face of this earth, this sentence, Sundar is love, would make no sense at all. Because love by its very nature is a relational term. It is what I do deliberately in order to contribute to somebody else's growth and welfare in some way or another. I could in fact be the most hateful person in this world, but you wouldn't know it unless there was somebody else. Love and hate are relational terms. So, to, so the statement God is love has no meaning if God is, only, is not in relationship himself. It is only the Christian formulation of God as three persons in one being that then shows us that the God who began this whole process was himself a God who was already in relationship. God the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit were in an eternal relationship with one another. And therefore when they created us human beings in their image. It had to be a relational image, with relationships being dominant expression of our creation. Now, if this is the case, if this is the case, then the pursuit of harmony and health in relationships should become the highest priority in our lives. If we are to experience abundant life. But many people, either because they haven't discovered this principle, all they have and have ignored it, choose to organize their lives around the pursuit of other things, money, fame, and well, and often at the expense of relationships. But eventually, the easy way or the hard way, the easy way of Christian, or the children or the hard way of unwise adults, 
certainly experientially if not theologically and analytically we all discover that relationships are crucial and without that we're never happy billy joel is a famous musician he had many awards in his life he had the um, male artist of the year award on one occasion record of the year song of the year album of the year 20 of his songs made it to the top 40 list in the 80s nine of his songs made it to the top 10 list he was elected into the rock and roll hall of fame listen to what he says the happiest times in my life were when my relationships were going well the 53 year old singer said but in my whole life i haven't met the person i can sustain a relationship with yet so i'm discontent about that i'm angry with myself i have regrets you don't get hugged by the rock and roll hall of fame and you don't have children with the rock and roll hall of fame i want what everybody else wants to love and be loved and to have a family he has articulated there for us two things at the same time not only the fundamental nature and the importance the crucial nature of relationships whose health is tied to our happiness but another mystery that is difficult so there's a second discovery that we have to make why is it that if relationships is built into the very essence of our being as created in the image of god it should be the most easiest thing for us to do yet it's the most perplexing the most continuously difficult thing to do and so we want to address that second question so we want to go back again to the beginning because all of the answers are found in the beginning because that's these are things that god put right into his creation and things that happened as a result of that you will read in the second chapter of the book of genesis that after god created first human beings he put them in a magnificent place think of the most beautiful garden you can imagine with no limits to their creativity with all kinds of raw material for their creativity beautiful things to look at to experience aesthetically um, physically perfection in a in a marriage relationship no sin food that was good to look at great to eat nutritious basically it was one joyful romp do whatever you want enjoy yourself and enjoy my creation but just one thing there's that one tree don't eat from it now why would god do that what was the significance of the test it was to drive home the fact that though they were made in the image of god that didn't make them god you say well come on do you really have to say that today i'm afraid we do Eastern mysticism is becoming very popular in North America and I come from that part of the world and at least one huge branch of Hinduism teaches that we are all god. And here in North America they may not call it Hinduism but they are teaching it a man by the name of Neil Walsh is very popular because he's written two books called Conversations with God and Conversations with God for Teens. And at the heart of his teaching here is a sentence from one of his books especially the one on teens. The voice he 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 speaks as of hearing a voice. The voice told him that God is everything and everything is God. Therefore we humans are God. Everyone around you is simply you in a different form and we're all God. That's pure eastern mysticism undiluted. So it is important for us to be reminded that we have been made in the image of God. We bear the likeness of God, but we are not God. And that simple little test do anything you want just don't do this one thing was intended to drive home to them the fact that you're not god and as you pursue these relationships in the horizontal dimension you do it in the context of a vertical relationship of submission to god and acknowledging his priority in your life well the story goes on that in chapter 3 uh, the third chapter in the bible uh, that adam and eve did exactly that they chose to use one dimension of their being made in the image of god which was their power to choose and they chose to do the one thing 
that they were told not to do. And it's, what's interesting about the sin is that it is the only sin that could have been committed by perfect people in a perfect environment. It was a, it was a raw act of disobedience, of an assertion of independence, just because it was possible. If you want an analogy, it would be like, I give you the key to six banks in this city. And you can go in and take a million dollars from any of those banks that you want, no problem. But there's a seventh bank and I tell you, just don't take the million from there. But you go ahead and do it. See, you have no reason to do it. No internal motivation, no reason to do it. You do it for the bare fact that I want to tell you that I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. Which is the essence of sin. Sin is not in the Christian faith a whole list of do's and don'ts. They all flow out of a fundamental problem with us and that is the assertion of independence of God. In fact, the temptation is put this way in Genesis chapter 3 that the devil tempts him to say, do this and you will become like God's yourself. It is the temptation to independently determine what is right and what is wrong that is the heart of sin in human beings. Now what is interesting for us and important for us in our subject is the immediate consequence of this action. It is described for us in the third chapter of Genesis in these words. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together and covered, to cover themselves. The man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? And the man replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me that fruit and I ate it. There are two immediate consequences of their act of independence of God and they are both relational. Which further reinforces the fact that our primary expression of our creation in the image of God is to be relational. The first thing that was fractured, at least as the record shows, was the horizontal relationship. All of a sudden, they were became aware of their nakedness. Prior to this, nakedness without shame was a powerful image of an openness, of a total vulnerability, total comfort, a perfectly, totally intimate relationship. It was healthy to the last iota. Nothing hidden. But at the moment when they rebelled against God, there was a barrier between them. That was the first relationship that broke. And it was further illustrated by the fact that when God flushed Adam out and said... Did, you, did all this happen because you told you do it what I told you not to do? He immediately blames the woman. He said, she did it. She made me do it. So, blame shifting, shifting responsibility and barriers. So, the horizontal relationship was immediately damaged. So was the vertical relationship. In fact, that's what actually happened really first. But it's described second. That when they heard God coming, they ran and hid from God. God who until that moment was for them the most natural environment in which to live out their lives in this beautiful creation that had been made for them, now was no longer a comfortable place for them. So both the vertical relationship and the horizontal relationship were damaged. It was the immediate consequence of their rebellion against God. If you read the next chapter, which is chapter 4, you will find the two of Adam's children, Abel and Cain. Cain primarily, because of driven by revenge and jealousy, murders his brother. So that's, that's both murder and sibling rivalry in the next chapter. So that's the litany of the first four chapters of the Bible. People created in the image of God, using their free will to rebel against God, just because of the sheer possibility of doing so, which is what makes it so heinous a sin, and so fundamental a sin. And then as a result of that, relational chaos. 
in marriage, between siblings and between man and God. Thousands of years later, you and I, because we bear exactly that same sin tendency of rebellion against God, the heart of which is independence from God, are marked by the same relational chaos. At the macro level, at the micro level. At the macro level, all I need to tell you was yesterday was 9-11, and you know. That's the kind of world in which we live in. But it's also at the micro level, at the much smaller levels. So we can't just blame governments, you know. Or or vague collections of people. Uh, On August the 4th, I had to do a wedding downtown on the 20th, and so I was driving to do a rehearsal. And so I found myself in a traffic jam in the Don Valley Parkway at 11 o'clock. I'm never on the Don Valley Parkway at 11 o'clock, in, ever, especially in the middle of the week. And so I was listening to radio programs that I don't normally listen to. At least. And this one was an interesting call, one of these talk shows where people were calling in. And you know what the topic was? How I got back at my neighbor. I heard about products that I didn't know existed that would help you do this. Some of which I cannot even pronounce and mention from the pulpit. And the glee, glee with which people were reporting how they got back at their neighbors. It's the world we live in. So it is when it comes to work. A 2008 survey of workplace studies showed this. Several workplace related studies in 2008 suggest that the majority of working North Americans aren't all that fond of who they work with. When asked if a colleague has ever tried to make them look bad, 50% of the respondents said yes. When asked to identify which causes more stress at work, Co-workers or workload, 51% of respondents said co-workers. And when asked if they work with one or more annoying co-workers, 86% said yes. So we have relational tensions all over the place. So we know relationships are crucial, we want them, we know our happiness is tied to them, and we don't know how to make them work at all levels. Jesus and the New Testament speaks about this. And brings it down right down to where the problem really is. Because we can be in danger of thinking it's all outside. James, who was one of the apostles of the followers of Jesus and early leaders in the Christian church, he wrote these words. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. He says one of the basic reasons why you have quarrels of all intensities at all levels is inside of you. It's things that you want but cannot get. And therefore it ends up in quarrels. It produces a barrier between you. Because for the other person wants the same thing and can't get it. And so you're in trouble. And one of the additional problems that complicates matters even more is that when we are in these quarrel or tension situations, it is the other person's sin that is clear to us and we are completely unaware of our own problems. And so Jesus spoke about that in a very memorable analogy. He said, why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite! First get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. And just to kind of get the force of this, sometimes a little bit of uh, play acting can help. So Ramona can just come up here for a minute. I want you to imagine that I have a problem with her. You know, we've had a a tension in our relationship, but I'm going to help fix this problem, okay? Ramona, I need to really help you. Why are you going away? We've got to talk. You know, I've got a beam in my eye. It's pushing her away. You know why? Because she can see it. She can see this huge beam, but I can't. 
That's the first problem. The second problem is because there's a beam in my eye, her little speck looks to me like a beam. So not only can I see her sin and not mine, her sin appears much, much bigger than mine is when I may have the bigger problem. At least that's where Jesus puts the focus. Human pride, this refusal to acknowledge the beam in our own eyes, is one of the biggest obstacles to healthy relationships. But there are two other emotions that are closely related to it. They were both represented by the fig leaf. You remember the first thing that they did as soon as they realized they were naked was they felt shame and they covered up. The text doesn't elaborate anymore, but I can just imagine what might have happened. Because if I suddenly see you naked, which is again symbolic of total, of I know what you really like, and I'm like that, that means you know what I'm really like and you're going to hurt me, so I'm going to cover up. So there's the fear of being hurt, the fear of intimacy. If I really open up, they can use that knowledge of me to hurt me. So not only am I... Pride keeps me from acknowledging my sin to myself, before God. Fear keeps me from acknowledging it to you. And shame keeps me from acknowledging it even to myself. Because I'm so ashamed of what I might really be like, the best way I can handle that is to pretend it isn't there at all. So pride, fear and shame are all involved in this process. Alright, so those are the two things we've learned so far. Two key discoveries about, around which we need to reorganize our thinking if we are going to have any hope of harmony in relationship. We started the problem. Why healthy relationships are crucial? We know that now because we have been made for that. Now, secondly, we've learned why healthy relationships are difficult. It's because of this attitude of independence from God, which is the essence of sin, and it is marked by pride, fear, and shame. Now, this, of course, begs the question, right? What do we do? (laughs) If healthy relationships are the most important thing in life, and yet they're the most difficult thing in life, what do we do? And that's the third key principle around which we need to reorganize our lives. First and foremost, because the problem started vertically, it all started with that act of rebellion against God, And we share in that fundamental attitude of independence, whether it's a nice-looking religious exterior or whether an awful-looking exterior, the essence of the sin is not the exterior, it is the independence of God. And so, you've got to move from independence to dependence. You've got to reconnect first with your relationship with God before anything can happen in the horizontal side. And so, the first thing we need to do is to go to God and ask Him. What are you going to ask Him? Ask Him to show the beam in your own eye. It is in God's presence that we get a right estimate of ourselves. Which means you're going to have to put yourself in places where this can happen. And there can be many. A a setting like today, you're showing up in church, deciding to come here, accept an invitation, follow a habit, do what you do regularly. All of those are good reasons to be here. Because when you're in a setting like this, you hear somebody teach you the Bible, you hear someone give testimonies like Sheila did, you might hear the words of a song, an invitation, and one or more of those ways... God can show you about a beam in your own eye. It can happen as you might be reading the Bible. Sheila was reading her Bible in order to get ready for a worship, to lead worship, and all of a sudden God spoke to her about a couple of things, two different stages. Or if you're not particularly religious, and so these two things might not happen, what if you just got quiet long enough to reflect upon a quarrel or a fight? Because see, again, what happens when you're in the middle of a tension in a relationship and the other person says things about us because they can see the beam very clearly, they say, but we don't want to hear it. Either fear, pride or shame all get in the way. 
But what if we just got quiet long enough, especially with some attitude of submission to God and say, show me, maybe in that moment of quietness, what your spouse or your friend or somebody said about you comes back to your mind and you say, you know what, actually they're right. If I'm really honest, I have to admit that that's exactly true of me. So in any one of those settings it might happen. So put yourself in a place where God can show you in one of many ways the beam in your own eye. And when he does, when he does, sorry, put yourself, and when he does, confess that sin to God without any varnishing or buck passing. No, she made me do it and this, that and the other. This is what it is and all its ugliness is a big, big beam and confess it. Here's another discovery we have to make in this context and that is to understand why God asks us to confess and ask for forgiveness. Many people think it's, it's an archaic, outmoded view of God as, as some divine tyrant who because of some mess up in his own being loves to see people grovel. Human beings are like that. We all know, may, many of us may know human beings who actually take pleasure in making people grovel before them. God's not like that because he has nothing corresponding to human need. Now, no need of his is satisfied by seeing his people grovel. He asks us to confess and receive his forgiveness so that we might experience one of the greatest blessings it is possible to experience and that is to be loved by somebody who knows you perfectly. Sometimes a, a human interaction can help us perceive the value of that blessing. John Ortberg in one of his books writes, well, the title to this slide is my own but these are his words. One of the most important moments of my spiritual life was when I sat down with a long-time friend and said, I don't want to have any secrets anymore. I told him everything I was most ashamed of. I told him about my jealousies, my cowardice, how I hurt my wife with my anger. I told him about my history with money and my history with sex. I told him about deceit and regrets that keep me up at night. I felt vulnerable because I was afraid that I was going to lose connection with him. Much to my surprise, he did not even look away. I will never forget his next words. Sorry. John, he said, I have never loved you more than I love you right now. The very truth about me that I thought would drive him away became a bond that drew us closer together. If I keep part of my life secret from you, you may tell me that you love me, but inside I think that you would not love me if you knew the whole truth about me. I can only receive love from you to the extent that I'm known by you. And even in the story that Sheila said last night as we were talking at home afterwards, she said, you know, Dad, and this particular individual that she had this interaction with has continued to be an amazingly kind and loving person, not just to her and to her family, but to us as well. And Sheila said, you know, if I'd never had that interaction with her, I would always have been plagued by this question. If she really knew what I had said about her, maybe she wouldn't be like this. But the fact that she knows and is still like this is one of the most amazing gifts of love that she can experience. Now, if that's just true in the human realm, imagine what it is like in the divine realm. If God who knows us better than any one of us even knows enough, we, there are beams within us that we don't even know exist that nobody has seen yet. God knows them all. And if He knows all of that and He still loves us, and that is made possible, by the way, because he loved us enough to send Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us. Since it is through faith in Jesus' death on our behalf that a holy God, and we're going to be singing in a few moments about holy love. His love is not a sentimental, wishy-washy kind of love. His love is a holy love. It does not neutralize his holiness. Christ died on the cross to satisfy the demands of God's holiness so that through faith in Jesus, 
we can then experience that forgiveness that we confess. That's how the vertical relationship is re-established. And I know that one sermon isn't enough to unpack that. We have a little ministry in our church called Alpha. You will hear, about, hear more about it next week, but even this week there will be people to help you understand that, which over a relaxed time of about eight or nine weeks on every Tuesday night around a meal with, with a small group of people, you can explore this dimension much more importantly. But you need to know that this, this problem of relationships starts by getting things right at the vertical level. Then, then you need to shift the focus to the horizontal level. That which God has shown you, that which He has forgiven you because you have confessed freely to Him, you now need to go the way Sheila did to the person with whom there might be intention. Whether a spouse or a child or a sibling or a neighbor or a workplace, whatever the situation is. And confess that beam to them. See, now you're not going like this. Now you're going this way. I'm sorry, this is what caused the problem. And you and I know from actual experience that whenever we've done that, it immediately makes it safe for the other person. Just like John Ortberg, when he confessed that litany of his problems, he discovered that his friend loved him. In fact, if you read this, the rest of the story goes on to talk about how the friend said, now I have to tell you everything about myself. His confession immediately made it a safe place. I mean, in every argument I've ever had with my spouse, and we've been married almost 40 years, so you can imagine we've had lots of arguments, I've never known one where one of us hasn't said sorry that hasn't immediately melted the other person. Ever. We've known plenty of times when we refused to say that and it wound up the other person. That's why he wants us to go and tell the other person. So we can then receive the forgiveness from them as well. Which then leads us to the last part. What if you're the person sinned against? When they do acknowledge that sin against you, then you now need to forgive them unconditionally without making them earn it. This is crucial. And the reason for that is not that they deserve it. Just like we didn't deserve to be forgiven by God, but He gave it to us unconditionally because of Jesus. And so because of the same Jesus, we are told to forgive people who ask us for their forgiveness. And by the way, here's another key discovery that you need to make in this area of relationships. Just like he asks us to go to him in confession and forgiveness for our own good, so in the same way, God asks us to forgive those who have hurt us for the same reason. One of the biggest lies with which Satan has continued to mess up relationships on earth is by getting us to buy into this lie that when I, if somebody has hurt me and I refuse to forgive them, I'm making them pay for it. I've got them on my hook. Whereas the truth of the matter is the exact opposite. That if somebody has hurt you and you refuse to forgive them, you're not making them pay, you're paying. They're not on your hook, you're on their hook. One man put it this way, he said it's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to drop dead. So, let's recap what we've learned, what we've discovered. Three key discoveries If it, in the whole realm of relationships we're going to have meaningful, healthy relationships. We need to know that we have been made for healthy relationships and they're crucial because we have been made in the divine image and harmonious relationships are the primary expression of that creation of the divine image and therefore they're a clue. They're a clue to meaningful ha- happiness and joy in life. Secondly, We've discovered why healthy relationships are difficult. It is because of the sin of independence of God 
manifesting itself in pride, fear and shame, all of which combine to mess up relationships. We've learned that the solution is twofold. Confession and forgiveness, first in the vertical realm through Christ and then in the horizontal realm. It's the vertical that makes the horizontal possible. Now, this, now the, the stories in Genesis chapter 1, 2 and 3 that we have anchored our observations in, as I said, provided a, a, a framework for all relationships, but the primary relationship there is marriage. God just didn't just make them male and female, he made them husband and wife in that relationship. And so, while these principles are true for all relationships, they are of paramount importance when it comes to the family. When it comes to the working out of relationships between husband and wife, parents and children, and siblings, which is, which is where the initial stories of the Bible begin, they are absolutely crucial. And so, again, in order to help us go deeper, more, at a more leisurely pace, but more deeper in those areas, we have a ministry in our church called Marriage Alpha. Uh, you'll discover a little bit about that, but it takes place on a Tuesday evening starting October the 5th. Um, and I want you to watch a little video that will describe it. But as you listen, can you just make one little uh, mental substitution? Whenever you hear the word dinner, please replace it with dessert. Okay? <laughs> the marriage course consists of seven sessions with a supper party at the end of the course when guests can invite friends to come and learn more about it and hear an introductory talk on what makes a marriage work. If we were to sum up what the marriage course is all about... We would use one word. It's about love. Marriage is about love. Over the seven sessions, the course looks at building strong foundations, the art of communication, resolving conflict, the power of forgiveness, parents and in-laws, good sex, and love in action. Each evening starts at 7 and ends by 9.45 at the latest. When they arrive, the guests are welcomed and then served dinner. The atmosphere is made as relaxed as possible. Behind the scenes, a team of volunteers works hard to make sure the evening runs smoothly. To my amazement, the atmosphere was incredible. I mean, it was candlelit dinner and uh, very positive atmosphere, lots of people there. And uh, what struck me as well was, although we were amongst all these uh, people, uh, I felt like we were on a sort of tropical island, just the two of us, and it was a great feeling uh, just to be able to spend time together. Forgiveness is not denying the hurt, just hoping it'll go away. After supper, the talk is given or the video played. Each session is broken up to give the husband and wife an opportunity to talk to one another, sometimes with the aid of an exercise. Privacy is important at this stage, and there is background music to ensure no one can be overheard as the couples talk together. I think what we found the most productive were the exercises, the time together, the long time together to talk about issues that were really important, and the questions that were asked really allowed us to talk about things that we probably would have found difficult to talk about at home. And also what was lovely was that we were really busy at that time. We had a young child. Miles was away on business a lot. And so it was just very special to have that time together. And, and we could take these things home and do the homework. 
And uh, we found that really deepened what we got out of the course. But the thing was, we really had to prioritize it together because uh, we, we were just all over the place and we were so busy. But taking that time together really made it worthwhile. Just to remind you that a marriage course is not intended for problem marriages only. Don't think that if you're going to sign up for that, for the help, that somehow you're going to be stigmatized. It is for all of us to continue to take those relational settings we find ourselves in and learn to apply these principles and just get better at it. So if you're able to spare the time, we really encourage you to do that. Similarly, for those of you who want to explore a little bit more about what does it mean to get properly connected with God through faith in Christ, which is where you need to start find out about the Alpha program. There's also a, a welcome package. If you're visiting with us, you can just pick that up at the kiosk. And if you want to follow Suresh, uh, Sushil on that journey of authentic manhood, you may want to sign up for that as well. I have two words for you to give you a blessing. And again, if you're not familiar with church settings, a benediction is not just a theological word for you're, you're dismissed. It actually comes from two Latin words which means good words. It's an opportunity for a pastor to bless or to speak good words to the congregation and for you to receive it as a gift. Nothing special in me. God has said that when a pastor blesses his people, God puts the power on that words to bless them. And when we sang a few moments ago the, the bridge in that song, When I find you, holy love, I find healing. It occurred to me in the previous service, it's not so much we find holy love, it's holy love that finds us. And so my blessing, first of all, is that you may be discovered by holy love. And then, may you have the determination to follow through on the specific steps you need to take to put yourself in the places where this holy love can keep working itself out. Go in Jesus' name.